Let's pray. Father, thank you for that encouraging song that tells us you are the source of every good thing that ever happens to us. You are the source of blessing. And we come to you this day asking that you might bless us. Open up your word that we might behold wondrous things from your law. Help us to see things perhaps we've not noticed before. Speak to our hearts truth and grace and draw your people back to your side again. Cause us this day, Lord, to be renewed and refreshed and refocused. For the glory of Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I think we do a pretty good job in our nation of marking important events of the past and honoring the people who made those events important. If you would go on the website of the National Registry of Historic Events or Places, you would find out that there are listed well over 89,500 locations in America that are deemed worthy of preservation. In Michigan, over 1,800 alone, representing all 83 counties. These are unique places where something important happened in the life of our, of our land, either the founding or the growth of it, something significant. Now, to be honest, you might go to one of these places and be rather discouraged. Uh, have you ever gone to a historic site and come away, you know, kind of nonplus? I mean, you can't find the plaque, the place is unkept or it's unimpressive, and you say, that was a waste of time. There are some of those. But then you'll go to a place that is really impressive. One of my favorites in the state is the uh, colonial fort, uh, Michele Mackinac, up in Mackinac City, where you go and see demonstrated what happened in that fort and the customs and the life of, the, of that particular era. Amazing. It's awe-inspiring. Nationally, I love those parks that commemorate Civil War battlefields. Like uh, when we lived out east, we would go to Manassas in Virginia or Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, Antietam in Maryland, Chickamauga in Tennessee, Lookout Mountain, Tennessee. I've never been there. I just like saying Chickamauga. <laughs> and at every place, there's a plaque so that we won't forget what happened there. Like Lincoln said, may we never forget what has happened here. Usually it's a bronze plaque that we put up that calls attention to some important person or place. But this is not something new. I mean, there's a long and well-documented history of marking important places, even into biblical times. But in biblical times, we didn't use bronze plaques. They used stones, like this one here. Well, not exactly like this one. This is uh, not exactly stone. Looks like one. I stole it from children's ministry this morning and didn't tell them. But it was just in the hallway, so hopefully it wasn't a problem. I'll tell them later. <clears throat> Jacob, when he met with God in Genesis 28, erected a pillar of stone and said, this is the house of God, Bethel. Let's never forget it. Or Joshua, when he led the people of God across the Jordan River for the first time as a people to 
possessed the land of Canaan, they took 12 stones, one for every tribe, and piled those stones up. And it says in Joshua chapter 4, those stones are still there to this day. So you can go and find the marker, and you can remember what God has done. And at the end of his life, Joshua erected a pillar under a large oak tree. It was called a stone of witness. And that stone reminded the people of God of the vow they made. We're going to serve the Lord and the Lord only. He will be our God. And Samuel one day erected a stone. And that's what I want us to look at today from 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, please turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 7. I want us to note verse 12. We'll start there. 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. It says that Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. And he named the stone Ebenezer, a Hebrew term, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. I don't know when I first came across that word Ebenezer in a religious context. I suppose it could have been when we sang the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Because the second stanza says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. Although new hymnals have taken the word Ebenezer out and substituted, I think, sign of victory, or some translations have even done that. And I suppose that's okay because they're, they're translating the Hebrew word instead of merely transliterating the word into a new language you've got to do that or you'll never understand what's being said but i kind of miss that word ebenezer and it was used by samuel and of course growing up i only heard about that from dickens and a christmas carol and i thought of scrooge but it has nothing to do with that kind of negativity it's the word that means the lord's help and this was a stone of help A memorial stone, just like you'll see in Washington, D.C., to those who fought in World War II. It's a stone erected to memorialize what happened here so that we will never forget. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. But the backstory to the setting up of this stone is utterly amazing. And we miss so much of what is happening if we don't go back a few chapters and read the story. Because this stone actually does three things for the people of God, and I want it to do three things for us today as well. As we're starting a new year, I want us to experience taking the time to think about what God has done. You see, this stone, first of all, made them evaluate, reflect, recall a horrible failure in their past. When they thought they were following God, but they weren't. And it was because of the location. Go back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. First Samuel chapter 4 and verse 2 says, Now the Israelites went out to fight the Philistines. The Philistines were in control of the land. The Israelites were subjects, servants to them. 
And they'd had enough. They wanted some independence, so they decided to fight against the Philistines. And we read that the Israelites camped at, get this, Ebenezer. And the Philistines camped at Aphek. Now, if you look at the map, we've got a couple places there that are a little more well-known. You've got the city of Jerusalem and the hills of Judea. And then you've got the city of Joppa, which is modern-day Tel Aviv, on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. Inland a little bit, in the mountains, north of Jerusalem, probably 10 miles or so, is, or a little further than that, is the city of Shiloh. And that's where the Ark of God was. Okay? So here are the two cities, Aphek and Ebenezer. Less than a mile apart. Israelites in Ebenezer, Philistines in Aphek. And the battle is engaged. Verse 2, the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before our enemies? What's wrong? Ah, I know. Let's go get the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of God's Covenant from Shiloh. Let's bring that Ark now into the battle so that it might go with us and so that it might save us from the hand of our enemies. So they travel east 20 miles to the city of Shiloh. They get the Ark and the Ark is taken now with a couple of the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, and they march back all the way to Ebenezer. And they say, now we've got God on our side. That was an oversight the first time. Unfortunately, 4,000 died. We're not going to lose this time. And the Bible tells us in verse 5, when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a shout that the ground shook. And hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? They just lost. And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. God has taken their side. God has come into the camp. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has ever happened before. I mean, these are the gods that no one can stand against. These are the gods that struck the Egyptians with all the plagues. How can we fight and win now? But someone said, verse 9, hey, if we don't fight, We'll become slaves of the Hebrews, just like they've been slaves of us. So be strong, be men, take courage, go fight, and die. <laughs> you probably don't have a chance, but we're going to go down fighting. So the Philistines fought. And the Israelites were defeated. Every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 soldiers. 30,000. The ark of God was captured. Verse 11. And Eli's two sons, the wicked priests, Hophni and Phinehas, killed. When a scout, a runner, took news back to Shiloh to tell the high priest Eli what, have ha what has happened... 30,000 people have died in battle. Your two sons were killed and the ark was taken. Eli was 98 years old and he fell over backwards, broke his neck and died. 
Phinehas, one of the priests, his wife was pregnant. And when she got word that 30,000 people had died and that her son, her brother-in-law, her father-in-law have all died and the ark was taken, she prematurely gave birth to a son and they gave him the name Ichabod, which means the glory is gone. The glory has departed. That's chapter 4, verse 21. Sad day in Israel. (laughs) Almost a sadder day in the cities of Philistia. I have to go over chapter 5 and 6. This is almost humorous. It's almost funny if it wasn't so tragic. The Philistines capture the ark of God and now they're in trouble. And chapter 5 gives us something of a tour of the major cities in Philistia. They take the ark from Ebenezer, where they captured it, down to their city of Ashdod. Five major cities in the land. And here's one of the chief cities, Ashdod. You can still go to the ruins of Ashdod today. The problem is you're almost in the Gaza Strip and you might get a few bombs thrown on your head. So when we go to Israel, we don't normally go to Ashdod. We did one year, but we haven't gone back. The ark comes to Ashdod and they put it in the temple with their god Dagon. And in the morning... He's fallen down. They set him up. The next day, he loses his hands and part of his face. And they say, we've got trouble. This is a powerful God. Not only that, God's hand was heavy upon them. Verse 6, chapter 5. Heavy upon the people of Ashdod. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. A study of the situation indicates possibly that something like the bubonic plague had spread among the people of Ashdod and they were breaking out not only in death because of the disease but in tumors. One translation takes the word tumors and says that they are hemorrhoids. (laughs) I don't know if that's true, but that would be a plague, wouldn't it? So the men of Ashdod saw what was happening and they said, the ark of God of Israel, man, it can't stay with us. So they gathered together. What are we going to do? We're in trouble. I know. Let's send it to the next Philistine city. Let's send it to Gath. Good for the people of Ashdod. Bad for the people of Gath. Because the same thing happens there. There's great panic in Gath, verse 9 says. And people are afflicted in the city, both young and old. And there's an outbreak of tumors. So they say, let's get rid of the ark. So they send it to one of the other cities, Ekron. And the same thing happens in Ekron. People are dying. Tumors are breaking out everywhere. We can't take this. What are we going to do? Let's send the ark back to the people of Israel. But we got to do this the right way. So we're going to get a new ark or a new cart to place the ark on. And we're going to have special oxen that will take it back. And we're going to put a guilt offering on it to appease God. That's the way pagans think. And they used what they call a votive offering. A votive offering is an offering that depicts the punishment you've received. And so we're told in chapter 6 and verse uh, 5, or verse 4, they put a votive offering of five gold tumors and five golden rats. Why golden rats? Well, that's where scholars think that maybe a disease like a bubonic plague was carried by these animals and inflicted the people. The rats somehow had something to do with the afflictions and the plagues. And, of course, the tumors were represented there, the votive offering. And they 
They whacked the oxen on the back and sent them in the direction of east and said, get out of here. And when they saw that the oxen went into Israelite territory, they rejoiced. The Bible tells us that the ark went to the city of Beth Shemesh. And they rejoiced when it came to that city, except some of the people peered into the ark when they shouldn't have. And some Israelites died. And so when you come to the end of chapter 6, the ark finally ends up in a city called Kiriath-Jerim, taken to the house of Abinadab, consecrated and guarded with respect. And the ark stays there, get this, 20 years. That's chapter 7, verse 2. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim. 20 years of bondage, 20 years of facing your sin, the defeat, the consequence of your rebellion against God, 20 years of mourning, and the people of God finally wanted to get right with God. So we read in verse 2 that all the people of Israel mourned and they sought the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, Samuel. Samuel was the one whose unusual birth is recorded in the first two chapters of 1 Samuel, the son of Hannah, who was barren, but she prayed, and God gave her a son. He started out as an intern and then became a priest, and then he was a prophet. And in chapter 7, he's a judge, we're told in verse 15. That means he's the most important political leader and the most important spiritual leader in the land. In the time between judges... And a king, a monarchy, Samuel's the guy. So Samuel calls an assembly. The whole house of Israel is what he's going to do. He's going to call them together. But he says, here are the stipulations. If you're sincere, if you're really returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, then this is what I want you to do. Rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the of Philistines. So that's what the Israelites did. They put away their Baals and Ashtaroths and served the Lord only. Wow. Israel went to battle with the ark. The ark is going to save us. We've got the trappings of religion. <laughs> and on the side, they're serving the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Baal was the Canaanite storm god. Ashtaroth was the god of, goddess of fertility whose worship involved all kinds of unspeakable, wicked sexual practices. And Israel was doing that on the side and wondered how they could be defeated. This is an amazing text for revival, is it not? Rid yourselves of your false gods. Commit yourself to serve Jehovah alone. That's what revival is. And that's why this is such a great text for a new year. We have the opportunity to look back and evaluate what's gone on in the past. And when we look back, we see some of our failures, don't we? We see some of our mistakes. We see some of our, our fallings before the Lord. And it's a time for us to rid ourselves of that and to recommit. 
Verse 5 says, Samuel said, assemble all Israel in Mizpah. Now when you look at the map, you see that Mizpah is actually placed between Jerusalem and Ebenezer, the town where they lost the battle, the town where the ark was captured. He says, I want everyone to come to Mizpah. And so they come from the south and they come from the east. They come from the north. They come from all directions. The west was occupied by the Philistines. And all Israel comes to Mizpah. And when they do, you know what they see? Across the valley, they see the town of Ebenezer. And they remember their defeat. Ebenezer was not... See if I can get it back here. Ebenezer was not. That's why I always have someone else do this for me. Ebenezer was not the stone erected in the town with the same name. It was erected somewhere, verse 12 tells us, between Mizpah and the city of Ebenezer. But they could see that city. And when they gathered together, they said, 20 years ago, the ark was with us. And now it's sitting down in a place and, the, and Shiloh has been destroyed. And we've been under the hand of the Philistines all of these years. And now we've been promised deliverance. If we turn from our gods and commit ourselves to Jehovah alone, the first thing they had to do, though, was confess their sin. And that's exactly what they do. Chapter 7 Verse 6, they assembled at Mizpah. They drew water and poured it out before the Lord, which is a sign of repentance. They fasted, a sign of mourning. And they confessed, we have sinned. Israel, what was your sin? Instead of trusting in Jehovah, we trusted in a box. Instead of worshiping the real Lord, we worshiped the trappings of religion, the ceremonies, the rituals, we had idols that we served instead of Jehovah when on the side we were still religious. And that's what the church of Jesus Christ is doing today. By the way, our idols are not silver and stone and wood like the idols of Israel, the idols of the Canaanites. Our idols are a little more refined. They're people. They're things. Houses and boats. They're... It's fame and prestige that we love and serve and worship. An idol is anything you give yourself to. Anything that takes your devotion. Anything that you are committed to, that you sacrifice for, that you delight in, and therefore schedule all your life around. That's your idol. And the very first thing we do on the, on the cusp of a new year is to evaluate what's happened in the past and confess our sin. It wouldn't be honest for us to deny sin. We are sinners. We can't sweep it under the rug. We've got to confess it. I like what Spurgeon said. Let us not forget our defeats if only to learn what happens to us when we forget our God. Don't live under the cloud of your defeat. Live under the victory of God's help. But we must confess that sin. Come thou fount of every blessing. One stanza says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
You ever feel that? If you, if you don't, there's something wrong with you. Because every true child of God battles with this pull, this negative pull to go back to Egypt, back into the world, prone to wander and leave the God we love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. So that's what happens when they get to Mizpah. They evaluate and remember and recall that defeat of 20 years before, and they repent and they recommit. Well, something happened, verse 7, that they weren't expecting. When the Philistines heard and saw that Israel gathered at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. Hey, we've got a rule under our jurisdiction. You can't gather together for an assembly. You Israelites, you know, you can have two or three people together, but don't get a large group together. That intimidates us. We think you might be trying to overthrow us. And now the whole nation is gathered. They were convinced Israel was coming to fight. Now that was the furthest, furthest thing from their mind. They didn't have an army. They didn't have any power. They were defeated. But the Philistines didn't know that, so they attacked them. And when the Israelites heard that they were attacking them, Israel became afraid of the Philistines. I can just see them saying to Samuel, as they said to Moses coming out of Egypt, thanks a lot. Oh, we should have stayed back in Egypt. Now we've got all of Pharaoh and his army coming after us. We're going to die for sure. Thanks a lot. They were afraid, but Samuel said, hey, guys, keep praying, verse 8. They were involved in a worship service, and they had been praying, and he said, I want you to keep praying. And so they cried out to the Lord, and he says, if you pray... God will rescue you from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel offers a sacrifice, verse 9, and he prays, he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord answers Samuel. God delights to answer the prayers of believing, faithful people. The prayers of the upright are his delight, Proverbs tells us. And when we are most diligent in crying out for help, that's when God is most valiant in routing our foes. Maybe your prayers aren't getting through because you're worshiping Baal on the side. They cried out to God and God delivered. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. But Samuel said, the only thing we can trust in is God. We need to pray. So verse 10, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder, and the Philistines th were thrown into a panic, and they were routed before the Israelites. Then the men of Israel formed an army. They rushed out of Mizpah, pursued the Philistines, slaughtered them along the way, all the way to some city we cannot locate today, Bethkar. And a great victory was won. And that's when Samuel said, let's put a stone in the ground to remember what God has done. I'll call this stone Ebenezer. For two reasons. One, I want to change the thought of that name's negative connotation with the city we can see across the valley where we were defeated, not trusting the Lord. And now I want us to celebrate the fact that God has delivered us with a great victory. 
The fact that God has entered into our hurt and our pain and rescued us. There was no army. There was no ark. Simply prayer. I don't think we understand how powerful God is and how he delights to respond to believing prayer. This was a great, this, that's why the stone is there. Up until now, the Lord has helped us. And they were celebrating a great victory. By the way, we don't celebrate very well. I don't think we, I don't think we celebrate as much as we should the victories of God in our behalf. I don't think we put up enough stones. Stones to memorialize what God has done. Did you know that this year, 2014, is the 125th anniversary of South Church? Founded in 1889. And we're going to celebrate. I don't know exactly what we're going to do. We have some people working uh, as a committee to put things together. We're going to celebrate. Not because we want to live in the past, but because we want to look back and say, up to this point, God has helped us. And let's celebrate. And let's rejoice. But there's also this idea of rededication with this stone. Because implied in that phrase, up until this point the Lord has helped us, is the idea that he will continue to help us all the way, if we but trust him. The location reminded them of their defeat. The occasion was a time of great victory. They needed to celebrate that. And then, by way of implication, the God who has helped us up to this point is our God from this day forward, and he will give us the victory. Answered prayer encourages future encouragement. Answered prayer motivates us to be encouraged for future blessing. And I think that 2014 can be one of the greatest years that South Church has ever experienced. I really do. We're talking about expanding a facility only because we want the ministry of God to go forward. And we're seeing some good and encouraging signs. We've had to postpone our town hall meeting from tonight because of the weather, but it's coming up. Read the worship folder and you can see the details of when it's going to happen. That is, if the, the official board approves and we have a motion to bring to the congregation Good things are happening. This could be the greatest year we've ever experienced. But it won't be if we trust in armies. If we're worshiping Baal on the side, it will happen only if we rid ourselves of the foreign gods and serve Jehovah alone and dependent, show our dependence upon him by prayer alone. So chapter 7 tells us they dedicated, they committed themselves to the Lord, verse 3. And he delivered them. And the result was peace, verse 13. The Philistines were subdued, didn't invade Israel all the time uh, that Samuel was a judge. The Bible tells us in verse 14 they gained an ally in the Amorites. They even extended their borders and recaptured towns that they had lost before. It was a time of expansion, of peace, and of freedom because they rededicated and renewed themselves to Jehovah. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, used to keep a plaque in his house with these Hebrew words, 
Ebenezer, Jehovah Jireh. And the translation goes something like this. Ebenezer, up to this point, the Lord has helped us. Jehovah Jireh, from now on, the Lord will see to it. Jehovah Jireh means God is on our case. He will provide. He will see to it that we will have all we need. And to, those, to, to Hudson Taylor, those Hebrew words brought great comfort and direction. Up to this point, God has helped us. And I'm convinced he will see to it from here on out. And that needs to be our confidence. Not in an ark, but in the almighty God. In the one who promises to deliver his people when they repent. And to bless his people when they obey. And to, we need to put stones in the ground as it were. To recall those times when God has proven himself faithful to us. So, it's a new year. Evaluate. Celebrate. Dedicate. And raise up your Ebenezer to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this morning that we will be able to honestly, transparently confess our sin to you. It would be the height of pride for us to say there is nothing in our life that needs to be changed. There's no area of growth that needs to be experienced. Lord, as we look back on an old year, we see times of failure and defeat and sin, and rebellion. May all of that be put under the blood. May we remember only what happens to us when we forget you. And may we anew and afresh follow you with all of our hearts. Wholeheartedly serve Jehovah and Jehovah alone, knowing that you will rescue and you will come to our aid. That is our prayer for a new year. In Jesus' name. Amen.